take out again your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7, starting in verse 53, and we will read through chapter 8, verse 11. So 753, just kind of picking up that last verse of chapter 7, and then reading through uh, verse 11 of chapter 8. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to her, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that you would help us to have ears to hear as the word is preached. We pray that we may understand, apply this text, that we may give you glory in all things. Thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ our Savior. Bless us in this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who are not using a King James or a New King James... A version of the scriptures may notice that this section of scripture has been offset in some fashion. Some versions put chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11 in brackets. Uh, Some italicize the text. And others uh, have relegated uh, this whole passage to the footnotes. Some some of you may be wondering, why? Why why is it that this has been bracketed, italicized, or in some cases even uh, put into the footnotes? Well, the answer has to do with whether or not this story belongs in John's Gospel. Uh, Most, if not all, of the earliest manuscripts do not contain this passage. None of the church fathers have left any commentator on it. In fact, it's not until the 10th century that we have any citation of it. Internally, this story breaks up the narrative, uh, which John has laid out, which, which leaves off in verse 52 of chapter 7, and then picks up again in chapter 8 and verse 12. In addition, where our present passage shows up varies between manuscripts. Some uh, place it earlier in chapter 7, 
Others place it in chapter 21, and then there are even manuscripts which have this story showing up in Luke's gospel. In addition to that, there's also the issue of language, the word choices, the grammar which is utilized don't fit with how John typically wrote. And so there's great doubt as to whether or not this passage belongs in John's gospel. And the overwhelming consensus is that it actually doesn't belong here. It's pretty clear just even from the internal evidence that it's breaking up the narrative of Jesus uh, during the feast as, he's, as he deals with both the water and the light. You know, the light's going to come up in verse 12. Which then, of course, this then brings up another question for us. And that is whether or not this is authentic. Is this, should, this even be, is this even, should, it, should this even be considered part of Scripture? In other words, although the passage does not belong in John's Gospel, should it be considered part of the canon of Scripture? Should this be received to us as the Word of God? Now, first of all, I don't believe that I am personally in a position to decide what should be or should not be in the canon of Scripture. I am, after all, a good Presbyterian. I don't get to make those decisions on my own. What we have is what we have received from the church centuries ago. And so, again, the overwhelming consensus has been that this story is authentic. And there's little reason to doubt that it occurred. Even if in written form, it's not found in John's Gospel, or perhaps in any of the Gospels originally. There are similar stories found in other ancient church writings. So it's well attested story. It's just a question of whether it belongs here in John. So then this brings up another question. Well, how did it get here? We might, uh, why might this incident, which is not coming in chronological order, find its place here? Well, one possible reason that it's included here is to illustrate the injustice of the Jewish authorities and their sinfulness against Jesus. Recall from last time, uh, Nicodemus' question in verse 51 of chapter 7. He asks this, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So those who have been faithful to the law, those who have been seeking the truth and justice, who should have been seeking truth and justice, were instead happily flaunting it in order to get the outcome which they desired, namely to arrest Jesus and have him put to death. You see, they hated Jesus such that they were willing to use the law unlawfully. And so here is a story which occurred at some time, perhaps it occurs actually later on chronologically, but it is inserted here to illustrate that basic point. And so what we have here is something of an excursus, an aside perhaps, which does come in the middle of an overall narrative occurring on the last day of the Feast of Booths, but which illustrates the Jewish leadership's sinfulness over against Jesus' sinlessness. And so now the opening of the narrative, uh, we notice, is, is rather abrupt. It's, a, it's actually reminiscent of the pattern which Jesus followed during the Passion Week, that is, the week before his crucifixion, which began with a triumphal entry and then ended, of course, with his death and burial. 
During that week, Jesus would spend his nights in Bethany, traveling to and from Jerusalem each day with a stop at the Mount of Olives along the way. And so you see this pattern in Mark chapter 11. You also see it in Luke chapter 21. And so it is plausible, it's as plausible as anything else, that this event occurred sometime during the Passion Week, which is to say, you know, sometime in the future, perhaps another year out from when the events of the Feast of Booze was, att- was occurring. And so the narrative begins in, in chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Now, verse 2 actually is a close parallel to Luke chapter 21 and verse 38. The people came from all around. They would gather and they would hear Jesus teaching in the outer courts of the temple. Now, the outer courts of the temple complex served as something of a venue for the scribes and teachers who would come and their, their students would gather around them and they would teach in this public place. And so we would, we would assume, of course, that Jesus isn't the only teacher there. Uh, and there were other teachers who were teaching their groups in this venue. And so this is a public setting. And there were people who would come and hear Jesus and they would go to other teachers and hear them and they would sort of listen to this teacher and that teacher. And those other teachers, maybe between them teaching, would go and hear as well. They would hear Jesus teaching, perhaps. And so, uh, being that the temple complex is this, this public venue, it's also the perfect place for the enemies of the Lord to seek to trap him with his words. Look at verse Three. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, concerning the, the scribes and the Pharisees, sometimes we think of the scribes and the Pharisees as either exactly the same people, or we think of them as completely distinct people. But it's actually a little bit more complex than that. You see, the scribes were the Jewish theologians who were the experts on the law. And the Pharisees, whose name, by the way, means separated ones. The Pharisees are the separated ones. These were the theological conservatives of their day. And so there, were, there is some overlap between the two groups. There are, uh, but they're not the same. Some Pharisees were indeed scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees. But some scribes were Pharisees. And so there's this overlap in membership, uh, but they are actually distinct as well. Now, these groups, though, as a whole, the scribes and the Pharisees, both the theological conservatives and the theological liberals among the scribes, and also some of the Pharisees who aren't necessarily scribes, they they all sort of got together and were seeking to lay a snare for Jesus. And they do this by bringing a woman before before him who they say was caught in the very act of adultery. This is important. She's caught in the act of adultery. Which is to say, that either she or the man, were, or both perhaps, were married to someone else, but were caught engaged in sexual immorality. Now it should be borne in mind that the sin of adultery is not one which can be committed alone. You, know, you, don't, you don't have adultery by yourself. And so immediately the question must come to mind, 
If, in fact, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, then where is the man that she was caught with? Where is he? Why is only the woman brought to Jesus to judge? Now, it will become clear in the verses which follow that the authorities here are not interested in even-handed justice. They're not interested in justice at all, for that matter. In fact, it may even be questionable whether or not there was truly any adultery at all. It's at least another possibility. Do they drag a poor woman before Jesus, who is an unwitting accomplice to their scheme? And if there truly was a sin of adultery committed, again, where's the man who shares in her guilt? Is it one of the men that are there? Is he there to also stand in judgment over her? Who of these men are the witnesses? And how do they come to be witnesses of her being caught in the very act of adultery? There's so many questions to be asked here. Well, the accusers go on, verse 5. They say, now in the law of Moses commanded, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So, what do you say? So here the accusers are already giving the remedy for the alleged crime. They cite the law of Moses. Indeed, what does Jesus say to this? The authorities think that they have placed Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. You might ask, well, how so? How was Jesus on the horns of a dilemma? Well, because on the one hand, if he says that the woman should not or should be stoned to death, then these authorities could accuse him of attempting to overthrow the law of Rome, which had reserved the right of capital punishment only to themselves in occupied lands. On the other hand, if Jesus were to say that she should go free, then he would not be upholding the law of God, and thus could be accused of being a lawbreaker, the very thing that the scribes and Pharisees hoped to do. And so this is quite a dilemma that Jesus seems to be placed in, isn't it? Now again, verse 6 informs us that the Jewish authorities have said these things to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. In other words, they're not really interested in seeking justice. They're not interested in what is true. They really don't even care which way Jesus goes with this. For they thought they had devised a perfect trap for Jesus to fall into. Now, it might be helpful at this point for us to consider what the Law of Moses actually says about a case like this. And so, um, if you want in your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22, you can, either, you can do that and follow along, or you can just listen. But I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verses 22 through 26. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, starting in verse 22, here's what it says. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. <coughs> the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. And so as we consider this citation from the law, the question must be asked, what was the marital status of the woman, and what were the circumstances that she was alleged to have been caught in? Notice that both the man and the woman in the affair, in the case of a married or betrothed, were to be stoned. And in fact, if it's in the city, if she did not cry out for help, right? If she's crying out for help, it's because she's being raped, right? If she's not crying out for help, then she also is participating in this, uh, allegedly, and so she is to be stoned. Again, where is the man? You notice that the scriptures put more emphasis on the man in this than they actually do the woman. But where's the man? He shares in her guilt, if in fact she is guilty, which is again still unproven. If this is the case of rape, she's not guilty at all. And the man would be, and he deserves to be punished according to the law. And so clearly the authorities in bringing this case have zero interest in bringing about the justice of God. They are misusing God's Law. This entire charade is built on a lie. Was this woman before him truly guilty of adultery? There's at least some doubt. We might even say at this point it's unproven. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that she is guilty. But who of these men were witnesses to the affair? If one of them is present, is one of them present party to it? If he is, he could not be a judge in this case. He actually should be a defendant. And did the others put him up to it? Well, if they're party to it, then they also are not eligible. They too should be defendants. They should be standing in judgment in this case. Thinking of the best of the woman, it is possible even that she should not be put to death at all, but the man should be. The man who hasn't made an appearance yet. Anyway, we look at this, though. This poor woman was being unwillingly used by the scribes and the Pharisees in order to ensnare Jesus and to destroy the Son of God. That's that's the purpose. They're using her to that end. This is a blatant miscarriage of justice and is an unlawful use of the law, no matter how you cut it. And so it seems to be on the surface to be an unsolvable dilemma will be skillfully used by Jesus to expose his accusers. And so how does he do this? What does Jesus say? Well, at first he doesn't say much. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, why Jesus did this and what he wrote, we can't know. It doesn't say what he wrote. This is the only instance recorded in Scripture of Jesus writing anything. Some have suggested that Jesus wrote Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Others have suggested that Jesus was imitating the practice of Roman magistrates who wrote out the sentence of the accused before reading it out. And then others have suggested that what Jesus did was write the sins of the men gathered there on the ground. 
And then as you note, they one by one depart. All of these suggestions are nothing but conjecture, pure conjecture. As John Calvin said regarding the speculations of this sort, quote, when God closes his mouth, we should desist from inquiry, end quote. The truth is, we do not know and cannot know what Jesus wrote on the ground. All we know is simply that he wrote. And in some sense, the act of writing is a, is a delaying action. Whatever was written didn't satisfy his opponents anyway, as far as we can tell. Because as he wrote on the ground, they kept asking him, what did he think? What will you say, Jesus? What should be done? Give us an answer to the problem that we've posed to you. And when Jesus finally does speak, what he says is very clear. Look at what he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, Jesus is not saying that those who are not sinners get to cast the first stone. That's often how this passage is, is taught, by the way. You know, only the sinless get to, and so then nobody ever gets to throw stones. Well, then there's no fulfillment of the law. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that punishment for crimes can only be performed by those who are themselves sinless. No, this is a direct application of Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 9, and chapter 17, verse 17. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17. And in, in, in those two passages, we learn that those who are the witnesses to the crime are to be the first to put forth justice. In other words, the first witnesses must be the ones who throw the stones and everyone else in the community. But they must be witnesses. They can't be party to it. Do you understand? They can't have been one who also had participated in the sin. They're not witnesses anymore. Now they're defendants. Or they ought to be. Jesus here is saying, okay, you are witnesses to this crime, the sin of adultery, which is punishable by death according to the law of Moses. But if you're going to be the ones to cast out those first stones in order to be proper witnesses, you can't also be a party to the sin. You can't have participated in lawbreaking and then also get to punish other lawbreakers for the same crime. You don't get to stand in judgment over other people who you participated in the crime with. Because that beloved congregation would be a grave Injustice. And so Jesus is not saying that the accusers had to be sinless, that they, have, they can never have sin in any sort of way. He's not making a blanket statement, but one which speaks to the particular issue at hand. These witnesses cannot also share in the woman's guilt in some fashion. And therein lies the problem for the accusers. You see, true justice demands that it be meted out evenly and justly. If the accused are themselves guilty of the same sin, the same crime, having participated in it, or if it's a ruse, the whole thing's a ruse, as the case may be, then they're not in a position to be a judge. They can't be the jury and executioner. In fact, they too should be 
defendants. The witnesses to their crime should be casting stones at them. You see, there's no place in God's economy for a man to be considered socially respectable in a, quote, above the law, while the woman is prosecuted for the sin that he joined her in. Sadly, that is the way many societies work, including our own, by the way. But that is not the society envisioned by the law of God. And so Jesus is cutting straight to the point. He is exposing this whole scenario as a ruse at best and an attempt at gross miscarriage of justice at worst. These Pharisees and scribes, the supposed legal experts of Israel, are themselves guilty of flaunting the law of God, of seeking to manipulate an injustice. They're the ones who really are found on the horns of a dilemma, not Jesus. Understand, beloved congregation, that vigilantism and kangaroo courts have no place in God's system of law and justice. It is not wrong for a person to be prosecuted for a crime. That is far from Jesus' point. It is wrong, however, to manipulate the law to get the outcome that you want. Every person deserves the proper, their proper day in court. It makes no difference if you are already sure of their guilt. The court must determine whether, whether it's a civil court or an ecclesiastical court. It is the court who must determine that. The court of the church may, must determine that in the case of sin. Which I understand can be very frustrating sometimes, particularly for people in the congregation who think, why, you know, why is this person being prosecuted for you know, their sin or whatever the case may be? Well, the court of the church has to determine these things just the way the civil courts have to determine things. We, but we, as individuals, we don't get to just make judgments of people. This is one of the problems I see with social media these days. So much prosecution of people that we're sure of their guilt. We're sure, well, we, are you really? Are you witnesses to the, I mean, are you in a place, really, to be able to make these judgments? Be careful, beloved people. Be careful. Proper and godly procedures should be followed in all cases. Everybody deserves that. And in many respects, this is indeed an illustration of the point which Nicodemus had made previously. Does the law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? It's illustrating this point. This is why our legal system, in our legal system, a man is presumed to be innocent until he's proven guilty. In fact, that's the way it's supposed to work anyway. Well, how do the accusers respond to Jesus' words? How do they respond? Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Notice, it doesn't say when they saw what Jesus wrote on the ground. It says when they heard it, what Jesus said, when they heard it. They went one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So you know, everyone eventually hears, and one by one they begin to leave. Starting with the older folks, the older men, and, and then down to the younger men. And finally Jesus is left alone with this woman. So the circle of accusers surrounding Jesus and this accused woman have vanished, melting away like the ice on a hot day. They perhaps understood that they were the ones. They, had, they basically had fallen into their own trap. And they were either going to have to flaunt the law of God 
or the civil law of Rome. They were going to have to do one of those two things. What they were doing was perpetuating injustice, and, and they actually understood this. And so, the only sensible thing left to do was to walk away from the whole thing. And so, one by one, they depart. Now, imagine that the older uh, men realize pretty quickly there's some wisdom in these things. They recognize what, they, what they're doing and hit the bricks. Jesus, who had been stooped down, riding on the ground, stood up again and said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Where where are your accusers? Is there no one left? Has no one condemned you? Are there no innocent hands left from this crowd of witnesses to your alleged sin by which you should be punished by death? Is there really no one left to throw stones at you? In the woman's response, no one, Lord. The woman had no accuser left. No innocent witnesses could stand in judgment. But there was one left, wasn't there? Perhaps she herself is unaware of this point. There is actually one left. Jesus, the Son of God, is there. He is the only innocent party eligible to judge. And what's his response to her? Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? Here's the one who could rightly stand in judgment. And he says to you, beloved Christian, no longer do I condemn you. Here, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is found a great comfort for great sinners. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to save. And only Jesus himself has the right to forgive sin. And the proper response to receiving mercy for past sins, as Dr. D.A. Carson puts it, is purity in the future. Go and no longer live a life of sin. Worship the Lord. Die to your sin. Jesus forgives this woman of her sin and he warns her to live a life marked by following God's law. From now on, don't live a life of sin. Leave your life of sin behind. Be done with the kind of life which is marked by a sinful lifestyle. This is what he's telling her. Now, putting it that way might leave you with the impression that this woman was a prostitute. That's the way it's often taught. Like, you know, often people say, oh, this woman was a prostitute. Well, the Greek language here does not give any, any sort of indication toward that. So I would be careful of making that assumption. At best, this is an implication, the implication of the passage, but the evidence is scant for that. No, this woman is a sinner like you and I are sinners. Any level of sexual sin and prostitution are unproven according to the law. Let us not think too much of her, but let us also not think too little of this woman. What we know is that she too is a sinner like you and I are sinners. And Jesus does not condemn her. 
What comfort this is to great sinners such as us, isn't it? Those who are in Christ, as Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Isn't that wonderful? Beloved, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the law of God must be used lawfully. I had considered titling this message a case for Presbyterianism. I thought Mike Duncan would enjoy that one. <laughs> I, I thought about that because of our form of government is found this principle. The principle that in cases of church discipline, even the accused has rights before God. Everyone has their, has their, their right to a day in court, and the Presbyterian form of government offers that, offers a, appeal even. Because the courts of the church error too. We understand that the sinners... Sinners in the church, right? The scribes and the Pharisees in our passage were trying to use the law of God unlawfully. They were trying to manipulate a situation so they might get the outcome they wanted, namely having Jesus in a snare. And these, these scriptures illustrate well the ways in which the enemies of Christ were seeking to destroy him. They were misusing the law of God. As Christians... We should be careful to use the law lawfully. You might be right on a matter, but that doesn't give you license to twist the law in order to get the outcome you think is right. Oh, they might get off on a technicality. I better... No, you don't get to do that. God's providence is still at work in things too, remember. This is why in the Presbyterian form of government there are requirements of witnesses for the accused, why there are opportunities to appeal a decision because the courts of the church do error at times. And so there must be room for that. A room for appeal. A case of sin must be proven. Now for some, when, uh, when the court of public opinion has already brought a conviction... Our system may seem slow and inactive, right? It's very frustrating. We already all know, you know, why why are they doing something about this? Well, sometimes the wheels of justice, even in the church, move slowly, deliberately. However, if you were the accused, you would want it to run slowly and deliberately too, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to be convicted the same way the court of public opinion does things, would you? Give, give a little room for grace for those who are having to, to, to work through these issues with people. Understand that the deliberative nature is to ensure that truth and justice are what come about. And since we are not God, we can't do so infallibly. And so let's be a slow and careful for the sake of the accused and for the sake of those who were sinned against. Right? They need justice. And injustice carried out against a defendant is not justice for the one who was sinned against. Not really. We don't, we, we don't want is a dark cloud which might remain over both all parties involved. And these are not easy things. These are not easy things to work through. And so I think this, there's a principle here along those lines. We must love justice. And seek truth because God does. And isn't this the good news? The reality is that you and I are not simply the accused. 
before God. We are guilty before a holy God, aren't we? And yet, there is no condemnation in Christ. And this is not because God just sort of turns a blind eye to our sin. No, he paid for it through his own blood. Justice was served through the Son of God on your behalf. Romans 8, 32-34 says, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he all, not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. So we are often... We are often unjust. We often use the law unlawfully. God is always lawful. God is always just in the use of his own law. He paid the price for us so that we can be justified, so that we can be free indeed. Let us therefore strive to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We're thankful that it is in our, in our Bibles Though it may, maybe it doesn't belong where it is, it's there by your providence. And we thank you for what we can learn from it. What is true justice? And we're thankful that Jesus brings us justice. That though we are, in fact, guilty, and the witnesses could throw the stones at us, the sinless one of God, Jesus Christ, instead paid for it. There is therefore no condemnation. We're thankful for the salvation we have in Christ. We're thankful that he calls us to live a life of repentance, of turning from sin. Father, by your spirit, help us to do that very thing. Help us to die to the sin which remains in us, for it clings to us. And yet we have been set free from its power. And yet it's still present in us. Help us, God, by your spirit to put it to death. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.